Some of the saddest words in the Bible are in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, where the Bible says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so as we look at our world today, we see right and wrong blurred, and it's always been so. And here we have God's people, Israel, uh, not understanding right and wrong, and everyone just doing what's right in their own eyes. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, Israel had become very wicked, and the prophecy here says, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. And so here's not just a blurring, but a complete opposite uh, of evil now being called good and good called evil. We're thankful then that we have a divine standard. A divine standard to which we can turn and try to come to understand what is good and evil, what is wrong and what is right. And this morning I want us to think of a, uh, about this, that wrong is always wrong. And we could very well have a lesson, right is always right. And that would be a good lesson to follow up with. But I heard a preacher say a long time ago, he said, uh, that someone had told him, uh, this is a no-brainer, but it's always wrong to do what's wrong, <laughs> and it's always right to do what's right. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way when we're pressured. But it's always right to do what's right. And it's always wrong to do what's wrong. Consider with me a few points this morning then about how wrong is always wrong. Wrong is always wrong even when it's legal according to civil standards. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, 1 Timothy 1 and 10, something that we've been studying under Guy on Wednesday night, but here talking about the law Paul wrote, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mother, mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's anything, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. These things are wrong because they're contrary to sound doctrine, not because they're illegal in their society. They're wrong because they're contrary to sound doctrine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11, it is written, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Some of these things written here were not illegal in Rome. I would envision that thievery and, and uh, being a murderer, things like that, but... Think of all the sin that existed in that society. It was wrong against God, but yet it was legal. 
And today, if you're a certain age, depending on the state you live in, drinking alcohol socially or recreationally is legal, but God's book says no to it. Gambling has become legal in so many places, but God's book says no to covetousness and addiction. Smoking marijuana, who would have thunk 30 years ago, but smoking marijuana recreationally is legal just next door, but God's book says no to dissipation and destroying our sobriety. Divorce that is not for fornication is legal, as far as I know, in every state in this country. Not so in every country, but what would it matter? God's law matters. God's book says no and says you sin in so doing, and there's great consequences even beyond that sin. Remarriage for one who did not put away their spouse for fornication is legal as far as I know in every state in this country. But God's book says no. You commit adultery with that new wife or husband in that new marriage. Fornication is legal. Homosexuality is legal. Some of it didn't used to be, at least in some states in this country. I grew up in a state where homosexuality was illegal. Not any longer, but God says no to it. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Abortion, legal in many places, but God's book says no to murder. And so, of course, what we want to do is our concern is what, what God has said. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, the apostles answered back to those authorities and they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's our concern. We must obey God rather than men. And so even when wrong is legal, if God's book says it's wrong, it's wrong. Wrong is always wrong even when it's legal. But wrong is always wrong even when you do not get caught. We're so often deceived thinking, well, nobody knows but me. And even the, you know, the wicked are credited with saying things like that in Psalm 94 and verse 7. Yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Oh, He's not seeing all this. Oh, yes, He is. Proverbs 15 and verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. And in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him with whom we must give account. In Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23, Numbers 32 and verse 23, um, we have Moses warning the children of Israel who were going to settle on the east side of the Jordan. Those two and a half tribes. And he says, now, you're not just going to go over there and leave your other tribes here to fight through these battles. And if you think you're going to do that, you've got something else coming to you. And I'm paraphrasing terribly. But verse 23, this is what Moses said, but if you do not do so, that is, if you don't fight for your brethren so that this land is conquered, but if you do not do so, then take note you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Sin is personified like an enemy. 
from which we cannot hide. We have a saying, the chickens will come home to roost. I think it could be applied to that. We may think we can carefully conceal sin, but it cannot be. Didn't David think he was concealing his sin with Bathsheba? And he kept sinning more and more to keep concealing it? We may think that with lapse of time, our sin will not find us out. But it will. Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 24. The only thing to do with sin is to turn to God and obey Jesus Christ and have your sins washed away in His blood or if you're a Christian, to seek His forgiveness. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, I don't believe that means that the things that we've done that have been forgiven of will be brought up. I don't believe that's talking about that, those things. Every secret thing that you haven't taken care of with the Lord Jesus, whether good or evil. Romans 2 and 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. I was thinking about how some sins are so easy to commit today compared to yesterday, yesteryear. Take, for example, pornography. Pornography is so easy on the internet. So easy. It wasn't easy 40 years ago. Maybe in some places it was easy, but not where I grew up. It's a certain age to get a certain thing and a certain books and all these kind of things. Behind the counter, all that. Someone says, well, nobody will know. Your sin will find you out. Think about liquor. We ordered a camera a few years ago and came a bottle of beer instead of a camera. Amazon messed up with somewhere in their system. But we got a bottle of beer. What's my point? I can anonymously just get my liquor all I want if that's what I want to do at home. Just about anonymously. Gone are the days where you got to go into the liquor store. Now you can go into all other kinds of places to get your liquor. You think about cheating in school. I'm talking to children. That's so easy to think, well, I'm not going to get caught. But that's deceptive. Deception is lie. So we're so easily deceived, aren't we? But wrong is always wrong. Even if you do not get caught. And as I said already, but I'll say it again, the only answer then is to seek the forgiveness that God and only God can grant. And then through obedient response, of course, to His invitation to be saved, we have to be impressed with Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 9. Joseph in that temptation from Potiphar's wife to commit fornication with her, he said to her, I'm sure it was nothing to her, but this is to him the truth of the matter. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knew that his sin would find him out and that God knows and sees. You know, someone may say, you know what I do at home is my business. And you know what? That's right. What you do at home is your business. <coughs> but you tell your brother or your sisters and brothers about the sin you participate in at home, then suddenly it becomes your brethren's business to help you relieve the sin. <laughs> I would that if I'm sinning at home, you find out about it. So you can help me out of it. James chapter 5 and verses 19 through 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of the way, his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's what we want. But wrong is always wrong, even when you do not get caught. Wrong is always wrong. Even when you were put in a difficult situation. I put difficult in quotes. Or maybe we could. What you consider a difficult situation or I consider difficult. You know what? I consider difficult situations probably different than yours because of what tempts me and what tempts you. Genesis chapter 3 and verses 3 through 5. We have the devil lying to Eve. He says in verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. She is confronted with a real temptation to her. Because verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. You see the shifting of blame? It was a difficult situation, my wife. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verses 8 through 13. Excuse making. 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 8 through 13. Here's a case where Israel is warring with the Philistines, and Samuel is told, Saul, I'll be there in seven days. And for what it's worth, if you read commentaries about this, they point out that the way this is worded, Saul waited the seven days, as it says here. But he didn't wait the full seven days. <laughs> Once it hit seven days, okay, he didn't show up. Now i got to do something. Samuel had told him, I will be there in seven days. 
taking care of the offerings and all of this. Verse 9. Uh, verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. I felt compelled. I had to. In other words, I just had to. I didn't have any other choice but to disobey the work of the Lord. Not so. Wrong is still wrong. Wrong is always wrong, even in a difficult situation. It reminds me of Aaron and the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus 32, here Moses has been receiving the commands of the Lord. And the Lord says, go down and get down there. There's something going on. He knows what's going on. The Lord does. But when Moses confronts Aaron about what, what's happened, them and the golden calf, and Moses said to Aaron in verse 21, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. It's the people they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that we shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Stop! You shall not make a carved image. Carved image? No, that's not what it says. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. It's hard not to laugh if it weren't so horrible. The shifting of blame. I was in a difficult situation with these people. and it's, I mean, you were gone for so long. What was I to do? You think about Peter in Matthew chapter 26. We can relate to this. I, I'm not going to ask anyone to show their hands, but... We, how would you have dealt with this at the Lord's betrayal? At His... Not at His betrayal. At His betrayal and beyond. But at His trials. When He was taken into wicked hands. How would you have handled that? I'm not excusing Peter. Wrong is always wrong. Even when you're in a difficult situation. Did Peter do wrong? Peter did wrong. It's not a matter of whether I would have done it too. Peter did wrong. Wrong is wrong. Even when you're in a difficult situation. Here he is, standing outside the courtyard, warming his hands and all of that, denying the Lord Jesus. In a difficult situation, yes. But wrong is 
always wrong. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sins it shall die. We should not blame one or blame another. Blame the father, blame the mother. No. The soul that sins shall die. Take responsibility for our own sins. Don't shift blame. You know, David's attitude when Nathan the prophet came to him and then he writes Psalm 51 and he talks about how against you, you only, have I sinned. He's so keenly aware of his sin before God. Take to heart the instruction and have the desire within this instruction. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Look for the way of escape. Give no provision for the flesh. Look for the way of escape. Wrong is always wrong, even in a difficult situation, but there's a way of escape. Wrong is always wrong, even when someone else has done something, quote, just as bad or worse, as we might call it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul in much of this epistle defending his apostleship, and there are people who claim to be apostles, they're false apostles, he speaks of in chapter 11, and false teachers and all of this, but he says regarding the apostles, the true apostles, 1 Corinthians 10 12, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, that is, these false apostles and teachers, false teachers in Corinth, they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Paul appeals to a principle here, and that is that to measure oneself by others of their same kind <laughs> does no good. It's not wise. It's the good old boy club of self-commendation. We must compare ourselves to the objective standard of God's Word, not to something... Of course, I'm, if I do something bad, you think I want to find someone who's done something, well, they did less bad than me. No, I'm going to try to find some people find someone who did something just as bad or worse. None of that does any good. The objective standard is God's Word. In John chapter 12 and verse 48, He who rejects Me and does not receive My words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. We're wanting to look into the perfect law of liberty, not at other people and compare ourselves to determine about our wrong. The wrong is wrong. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. The objective standard is the perfect law of liberty, like a mirror. A perfect mirror. Sometimes we're inclined to say others are doing it too. I'll never forget the fifth grade, fourth grade science class with Mr. McKinney, and he called me out big time. But everybody else in the class was doing just about what I was doing. But I think there was a difference, and that was he knew me. He knew my family. And so he was going to call me out. And I remember saying back to him, I can't believe I said this back, 
But I said something like, well, everybody else is doing it. Well, it didn't go over too well with Mr. McKinney. It doesn't go over too well with the Lord. Others are doing it. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2, the command to the Israelites was, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Listen to me, young people. As you grow up, people are going to try to get you to follow them in a crowd. Come on with us. You're going to have to have courage to say no. No, because wrong is always wrong. I don't care if everybody's doing it. Wrong is always wrong. In Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 through 14, may I ask you as the majority something to follow? Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I'm not suggesting you find the minority and then follow them. Follow the Lord's will. But we see here that the majority is not going to. I think of something that Jesus said in John chapter 21 and verse 22. It, it kind of relates to this point. Jesus has been talking to Peter about feed my lambs and feed my sheep. And then there is this incident, or not an incident, but this case with John, the one who wrote this gospel account. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following, who also uh, had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Peter had already been told, Hey, you're going to. It's not going to go well for you, Peter, in the end. They'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Well, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will, then he remain till I come. What is that to you? Follow me. Now here's what I wanted to get out of that verse. What is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you what someone else is doing? You do right. You follow me. What is that to you? I know that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about what is that to you about whether he lives till the destruction of Jerusalem or something. But the point, what is it to you? You follow me. Romans chapter 14 and verses 11 and 12. For it is written as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. There's no partiality with God, Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. Do we think God shall cut me some slack because I think that someone else did something worse than me or something? I mean, no, God calls upon all men everywhere to repent. Acts chapter 17 and verses 30 through 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent because He's appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Judge the world in righteousness. That means according to truth. According to truth. 
And so we take care of our own wrongs. Wrong is always wrong, even if someone else has done something bad or worse. Just as bad or worse. Wrong is always wrong, even when it is done for a good outcome. I put quotation good. A good outcome. If we turn to Romans chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8, this is this point is what we would consider situation ethics. That is, the end justifies the means. So even though the means are wrong, because the ends are good, then it's it's not wrong. Well, that's not true. Wrong is wrong. In Romans chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? That is, what if some of the Jews didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged a sinner? And why not say, let us do good, or do evil, that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. For me, this is a complicated passage to fully understand, but here's the basic point here. The Jews would say, if my unrighteousness, and remember in the first three chapters, Paul is pointing out that all are in sin, Gentile and Jew. Now he's dealing with the Jews in chapter 2 and into chapter 3 also. But if the Jew were to say, if my unrighteousness advertises God's righteousness, because He sent His Son to save me, why am I guilty before God? In other words, I'm doing something evil and unrighteous, but it has a good outcome, and that is that then God has to save me. <laughs> it advertises His righteousness. Why should I be guilty then before God? I shouldn't be guilty because my unrighteousness allows God to show His righteousness. I'm not reasoning right. I'm reasoning as, as He's pointing out is wrong. Such logic is faulty and Paul condemns it. In verse 8 is this kind of thinking, summed up in verse 8, doing evil that good may come. Can we do wrong that good may come? The answer is no. <laughs> he says their condemnation is just. We cannot do wrong in order that we think some good or right will come of it. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. It seems right, but its end is the way of death. You know, governments do this all the time. I mean, how many places really had gambling 30 or 40 years ago? And then we got the lottery just about everywhere. And what's it for? Oh, it's for education. It's for our kids. It's for our kids. Our sweet little kids. It's for education. Oh yeah, and we'll set up a hotline if you get addicted. Be careful in this. I, 
we didn't expect government to do the right thing, but here they are, wrong. Oh, but we're going to, it's for the education, it's for the kids, so we use the money for the kids. What about Christians? Well, or anybody for that matter. Can we lie to protect another's feelings and justify it because it's a good outcome? No, it's still lying. What about lying then for your faith in order to protect your life or even less, just a friendship with someone? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 39, Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You look at churches that have gone for the social gospel to attract people and be more palatable to the world. Well, it's a good outcome. We've got more people coming. People converted to food, not to the gospel. Organizations that violate the autonomy of the local church in order to spread the gospel. Someone says, well, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good outcome. Is it according to the Scripture though? Do we not trust God that His way is right? I was reading in a book, The Church, The Falling Away and the Restoration by J.W. Shepherd, written back in the 20's. <laughs> the last century 20's. And he writes in the great falling away that began after the Apostle's death, the first case of a fusion of water, that is pouring water upon someone in place of immersion was in 251 A.D. When a man was baptized, quote, baptized by effusion, pouring water on him in a bed as he lay. This was for sick people. I've been in the Bible class discussion in the church where it was contemplated as acceptable. Who has the right to say that's acceptable? Nobody. Why? Oh, but it has a good outcome. We think we're going to save him. It's not even baptism anyway. It's not immersion. I can't change that. I don't have that right. Wrong is always wrong, even when you think it's for a good outcome. Instead, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's what we need to do. Wrong is always wrong, even when it's done for some perceived good outcome. But wrong is always wrong, even when it's done in ignorance. Ignorance doesn't make a wrong right. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, in Acts 3 and 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as also did your fathers. Peter preaching to Jews, and he said in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Ignorance doesn't make wrong right. In Acts 17 and verse 23, the people that Paul was speaking to in Athens ignorantly worshipped an unknown God. But it didn't make it right. Paul's Jewish brethren in the flesh were still in ignorance. He said, Brethren, my heart's... Romans chapter 10 and verses 1-3. through 3, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is Israel that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's ignorance. But not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is God's way of making men right, and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted 
to the righteousness of God. Wrong is still wrong even when it's done in ignorance. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul speaks about how he acted ignorantly in unbelief prior to his conversion in Acts chapter 9, persecuting the church and Christ. What he did was wrong, albeit done in ignorance. He needed grace and mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why Ananias told him, Now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. He was still in his sins. Those sins. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14. Regarding the Pharisees who were offended when Jesus told them that in vain they do worship Me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. He said then, let them alone. His disciples asked Him about this. He said, let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Blindness. Blind people following other blind people. Ignorance. It's a great enemy. And God doesn't excuse ignorance. There are some who are willingly ignorant. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. Well, God's long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord doesn't want us, of course, to be ignorant. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. Even as Christians. Paul would write, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, in this case, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. God didn't want him to, Paul didn't want him to be ignorant. God doesn't want us to be ignorant as Christians. So he commands, Ephesians 5.17, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wrong is wrong even when done in ignorance. But the final one here, wrong is always wrong, even... Not the final one. Second to last. Wrong is wrong even when it does not bother your conscience. Conscience may be thought of as a court. A court which, if it does what it's supposed to do, does not make the law, but only determines whether behavior has been in accordance with the law. In a similar way, our conscience alerts us to whether our behavior is in accordance with what our heart understands and believes to be the truth, to be law. An approving conscience then is telling us our behavior is in line with our belief. A condemning conscience is telling us that our behavior is not in line with our belief. You can see then that the key to all of it is truth. In Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, Saul upsets the people when he said, I've lived in good conscience and all good conscience to this day. And of course they didn't like the counsel he was before, didn't like the way he was now living. Saul lived in good conscience. And yet, 
when he was living in good conscience and persecuting the church, he was doing wrong. And so it's imperative that we train our hearts by the Word of God, our beliefs. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 talks about a conscience that's seared with a hot iron and thus it can't function. I take that to mean it cannot tell you when you've gone against your belief. That's, that's scary, isn't it? That's like, a, that's like confusion. <laughs> that caused one person to do one thing one time and one thing another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 4, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court, Paul says. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Here's the point. Purity of conscience is not equivalent to acceptability with God. Does that mean you throw your conscience out? Of course not. That's not what that says. But purity of conscience is not equivalent to me being acceptable before God. Wrong is still wrong even if I do it with a clear conscience. And again, I'll say it's imperative that we fill our hearts with knowledge of and understanding of and belief in the truth. The Word of God then. Wrong is always wrong even if it doesn't bother your conscience. But this is very well connected to it. Wrong is always wrong even when you're sincere in doing it. This is, I believe, similar to living in good conscience. It's difficult to kind of split the hairs on a good conscience and sincerity. I believe it's worth making a point though. Sincerity is acting with pure motives that are free from pretense, free from deceit, free from hypocrisy. When we think about sincerity, we would say sincerity is not enough for the rocket scientist who miscalculates the trajectory of the manned spacecraft upon re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Somebody's going to perish. Somebody's, perhaps. Sincerity's not enough when you think you're shooting a raccoon, but it's your neighbor's cat. Sincerity's not enough when the crop duster thought he was spraying pesticide, but he's actually spraying defoliant that kills a plant. That's the way cotton was taken care of in South Texas was with defoliant. Well, they wouldn't want to get that mixed up when they're spraying for the boll weevils. But they could sincerely get it mixed up. For some reason, when we get to religion and people begin saying, well, sincerity is enough. He's sincere or they're sincere, which is interesting because how can you even know most of the time about one's sincerity? As if we read people's hearts. Except through words and actions. Then you can come to some conclusion perhaps. Sincerity's always been required with God, but sincerity hasn't justified. Sincerity and truth is necessary. Sincerity and truth is necessary. In First Kings chapter thirteen and verse eighteen, we'll not turn there, but you you may know the story of the man of God, he was a courageous man of God because he went to Jeroboam. 
and prophesied against him and his idolatry. And then he was told about how to return home. Don't go by the way that you came. Don't eat or drink on the way. But someone came to him and lied to him and said, oh no, no, you can come home with me and eat and drink. And, and he believed this prophet who prophesied, who spoke falsely, spoke a lie. He believed him. And he perished. He was sincere in what he believed from that man. But he believed a lie. He acted according to the lie. And he perished for it. Enter Saul again. Acts chapter 26 and verses 9 through 11. He said, I thought within myself to do much harm to the Christians, and so on. I thought. I don't believe he's suggesting with evil intent and malice and hypocrisy. I thought. No, I thought. I thought this was the right thing to do. I was sincere about this, but I learned better. In Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 through 24, Matthew 7, 21 through 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Sincere, aren't they? But they're not acting according to law. The law of God. So it's lawless. They're in lawlessness. And what's the result? Condemnation from the Lord. Wrong is always wrong even when you're sincere in doing it. And we need to do everything that we do in sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians 5 and 8. Not just sincerity, but sincerity and truth. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Wrong is always wrong, even if it's legal. Even if you don't get caught. Even if you're put in a difficult situation. Even if someone else is doing something just as bad or worse. Or everybody's doing it. Even if it's done for what you consider a good outcome. Even if it's done in ignorance. Even if it doesn't bother your conscience. And even if you're sincere in doing it. Proverbs 8 and 36 tells us that one who sins wrongs his own soul. When we do wrong, we wrong our own soul. And he who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he has done. And there's no partiality. Colossians chapter 3 and 25. And that's why we need the forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 9 through 11, we read about how judgment will be based on things done in the body whether good or bad. And how are we going to know? We're going to have to go to the divine standard to determine good or bad. Wrong and right. So what's the answer? Turn away. Turn away from wrong and do right. Turn to Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. If you're not a child of God, you need to hear the Gospel, believe it, repent of your sins and Confess Jesus as Lord in Christ, the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's what to do with wrong, your past wrongs. Now start doing right.
and make this be your standard. Let the Bible be your guide in right and wrong. All Scriptures give by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Complete. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's the standard. That which Jesus has authorized, that which is in God's Word. Wrong is always wrong. Right's always right. Are you here this morning and need to respond to the Gospel invitation? If you're a child of God and you're not living right, will you make it right with the Lord? Do that as we stand and sing a song to encourage